0: all right good morning once again can i have you turn with me in your bibles to the book of first samuel chapter one as we've already pointed out several times the book of first samuel opens up during one of the blackest periods in israel's history the period of the judges it was a time when really personal opinions rather than god's commandments were the rule that people followed Thus everyone did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And the result was a society filled with violence, immorality, darkness, lawlessness, and it was a time when human life wasn't worth very much. As we've already seen, during this time of social chaos and moral confusion, God put his hand upon a woman named Hannah, to be an instrument that he would use to literally, literally birth a new chapter in the nation's history. Her name means grace, and she teaches us that. Even during the blackest periods of our lives or our nation, God's grace is still present and is able to give birth to new circumstances that will turn our sorrow into joy, even as the psalmist said, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Now, I've outlined the first part of this book, the part that deals with Hannah, this way. Hannah's suffering, verses 1 to 7. Hannah's supplication, which we looked at last week, verses 8 to 18. Today, Hannah's son, verses 19 to 28. And we'll finish next week with Hannah's song, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. All right, Hannah's son. First of all, Hannah's prayer for a son, we see, is answered by the Lord. Verse 19, Then they arose early in the morning, and worshipped before the Lord, and returned, and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her, So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord. The phrase Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, is just the Bible's delicate way of saying he had physical relations with her. And when it says that God remembered Hannah, understand something. It doesn't mean that God forgot Hannah and went, oh, now I remember there's a gal named Hannah i got to do something with. Uh, no, that wasn't it. All right? uh, first of all, it's impossible for God to forget anything. He's God. All right? And so even when we read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 17, we're in the new covenant God promised to remember our sins no more, doesn't mean they're going to be wiped from his memory bank. It just means that our sins wouldn't be remembered any longer in the sense of being held against us. Or in other words, that God would not act against us in judgment. When it says that God remembered Hannah, it simply means that he began to act on her behalf. He began to fulfill the request she'd been asking of him for a son. As we saw last week, verse 7 tells us that Hannah had been praying for years for a son. Years of brokenhearted prayers that God would give to her a son. And guys, we all know as Christians that sometimes we can pray for something for a long time before God sees fit to answer our prayer. His timing, though, is always perfect. Jesus encouraged us to not give up praying. In fact, when God delays His answers, it teaches us perseverance. But in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, Jesus said that men, women, ought always to pray and not lose heart. And then went on to give a parable teaching on the value of persistence in prayer. When the disciples came to Him in Matthew 6 and said, Lord, will you teach us how to pray? He teaches them a model prayer, but then it continues on in chapter 7 of Matthew's gospel where he also teaches them the importance of persistence in prayer. You know what he said in Matthew 7, starting in verse 7. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. The Greek literally says, Please ask and keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Please seek and keep on seeking, and you will find. Please knock and keep on knocking, and it will be opened to you. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, This is not the taunt of an indifferent God playing hard to get, treating us like puppies trying to teach us to beg. And if we stand up on our hind legs and yap loud enough, he'll drop a biscuit in our mouths. No, this is the heart of a loving father exhorting us, even pleading with us to stay in constant communion with him because he loves us so much. End quote. Look, guys, prayer is not something we do once in a while, maybe over a meal or as we're dropping off to sleep or even as we come to church once a week. Prayer is something that we are to do constantly. In fact, as somebody has said, prayer for the Christian should be as natural and come as easily as breathing does for our body. In other words, we should cultivate a mindset that is always talking to God, always talking to God. I go through my day and I'm always talking to the Lord. I'm always It's like he's right next to me, so I'm always conversing with him. I'm thanking him for this or that. I'm asking him for wisdom here or guidance with that or something. But it's just something that I've always done because... I want to remind myself all, all the time that God's with me. You know, he's not here. I don't have to come to church. Some people think they got to come to the church to pray. Well, isn't that where God lives? Well, uh, I'm not sure in some churches if he's even there, but he lives in our hearts as Christians. So he's always with us. Therefore, let's treat him that way. Bring him into every conversation, every thought of our heart and so on. As one writer said, though, with regard to prayer, persistence in prayer, he said, and I quote, As we pray, God will either answer our prayers with a yes, a no, or a not now. If he answers yes, make sure you thank him and don't let it come between you and him. If he says no, be mature enough to accept it and say, Not my will, but your will be done. And if he doesn't answer, he may be saying yes, but not right now. So keep on asking and seeking and knocking, end quote. Good advice. In fact, Jesus called this abiding, abiding, and Paul exhorted us to pray without ceasing. And so God remembered Hannah. In other words, he began now to act on her behalf to give her a son. And as he did, she responded by naming him Samuel. Now, a couple weeks ago, I told you that Samuel's name means asked of God. Uh, A little further uh, study revealed that even though some commentators believe that others and i think they're probably right others believe that the name samuel literally means heard of god heard of god and the reason hannah gives for naming him that was because i asked for him from the lord that's why a lot of commentators say his name means asked of the lord well no his name means god heard me and answered my prayer basically because i asked the lord Samuel's very life, as we have already pointed out, became a living testimony to the God who answers prayer. And guys, I believe in my heart that is what God wants for all of our lives as believers. He wants us all to be spiritual Samuels. What do you mean? Well, he wants us to be those who are living testimonies to the God who answers prayer. Listen, there's a lot of people who will never come to church, okay? They'll never come to church. They've got a real problem with church. Fine. So you have to go to them. You have to be a living epistle. You've got to let your light shine. And one of the ways you do that is by living a changed life. Hey, look, they can argue with our doctrine all they want. The Bible is not God's word. It's just a book of fables and myths and so on. Fine, whatever you want to say, okay? But they can't argue with a changed life. They cannot argue with a changed life. Hey, they knew you before you got saved. They knew you were into alcohol, drugs, whatever. They knew the kind of person you were, the kind of struggles you had. And all of a sudden, something has changed, Okay, you have peace that they can't figure out. You're not drinking anymore. Like you, You're not messing with drugs anymore. You're going to church and reading the Bible. What in the world has happened to you? And sometimes, sometimes their curiosity will get the best of them. And, they, and part of it is not just curiosity. They're hurting. They're in bondage to alcohol, drugs, pornography, and so on. Their lives are a mess. Their marriage is falling apart. They have no answers for their problems in life. They don't know what life's all about. And now they look at you, and you seem to have it together. And so they're drawn to you. And they come to you and say, what happened to you? man? I, you used to drink and party. You don't do it anymore. What, 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 you're going to church. You seem like you have peace all the time. What's going on? Hey, God made me a Samuel. What are you, Sam, what are you talking about? I cried out to God, man. I, I was in such a bad place. I cried out to God. He, he brought somebody into my life that wouldn't see me about Jesus. I accepted Jesus, and I asked God, will you please deliver me from the bondage of alcohol or drugs or this or that? And he heard my prayer. He turned me into a living Samuel, heard of God, because I asked my God, my God is a God who answers prayers, and I'll tell you what, he can be your God if you want him to be. If you will receive his son, he'll answer your prayers too. He'll set you free. That's a powerful testimony. A changed life, man, nobody can argue with that. Remember what James said, though. You don't receive from God because you simply don't ask God. Guys, the greatest hindrance to answered prayer is no prayer. Okay? Very simple. Anyways, Hannah's prayer for a son is answered by the Lord. Secondly, Hannah prepares her son for the Lord. Verse 21. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. We've already talked about Elkanah uh, being a very godly man and how he faithfully led his family to participate in the annual Torah-prescribed pilgrimage festivals. What were these? Well, let me read it to you out of Deuteronomy chapter 12, starting in verse 5. You must seek the Lord your God at the place of worship he himself will choose from among all the tribes the place where his name will be honored. At this point it was in Shiloh. Verse 6, there you will bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your sacred offerings, your offerings to fulfill a vow, your voluntary offerings, and your offerings of the firstborn animals of your herds and flocks. There you and your families will feast in the presence of the Lord your God. And you will rejoice in all you have accomplished because the Lord your God has blessed you. So it's kind of like our Thanksgiving in a way. Only they made the pilgrimage to the house of God every year to offer these sacrifices of thanksgiving and to eat there in the presence of God to thank him for all he had done for them over the course of the year. And so as Elkanah prepares his family to once again go up to Shiloh to the house of God to worship there and observe one of these Torah festivals we read in verse 22 but Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband not until the child is weaned then I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever now mothers back then usually weaned their children at age three and these were special years for Hannah now she was about to give Samuel to the Lord so he wouldn't be staying with her anymore so the first three years were very special She got to really enjoy this child that she had prayed so long for. They were precious years for Hannah, but they were also years of preparation. preparation Valuable years where Hannah taught her son about the Lord as she prepared him for a life of service to the Lord. Now you say, wait a minute. He was only three when she gave him to the Lord. What could she possibly have taught this toddler? Uh, In the first three years of his life, that would have been of any real value to him as he grew up and began to serve the Lord. Look, guys, let me say this to you: You can't give to your kids what, what you don't have. Okay? It's got to be in your heart. We, as Christian parents, we're all guilty of this. We tried to get them to believe we were often more spiritual than we really were. Okay? The problem is kids aren't stupid, and they live with us, so they actually see us all the time, and they know how we act in church, and they know how we act when we get home, and so or somebody cuts us off on the way home, whatever. Um, I'm not going to go there, but but here's the thing, okay? okay. Uh, you can only pass on to your kids what you have what did hannah have now we don't know everything about hannah from the little bit we read about her in first samuel but let me tell you what i see from hannah that comes out of the story first of all she was a woman who loved god she was you can impart that to your kids you can you can impart a love for god to your kids at a young age okay but you have to have it it's got to be in your heart she really loved the lord secondly the thing comes through is that hannah was a woman of prayer You know, you can teach, you don't have to be a theologian or a pastor or a missionary to pray. You can teach your kids at a very young age how to pray. In fact, I think you ought to teach them at a very young age how to pray. Because that lays the foundation for them to become a man or a woman of prayer down the road. Now, I'm not saying that Hannah didn't teach her kids scripture at all. I'm just saying, though, that primarily I think what she passed along to Samuel to prepare him for the work he would eventually go on to do for the Lord was first of all a love for God secondly a heart for prayer that's what she passed along first and foremost now she says here in verse 22 you know I'm going to take him eventually to Shiloh and there I'm going to leave him with the Lord that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever well forever the Hebrew word doesn't have to mean forever it could mean All his life. In fact, the NIV translates it. She says, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. And the idea is that what Hannah was saying was that when I do wean him, when I finally wean him, uh, and and I do take him to the annual pilgrimage in Shiloh, when I do, he's going to remain there. He won't ever return home again. He will stay at the house of the Lord as long as he lives. Now listen. As incredible as Hannah's sacrifice was, understand that the most important part of this whole story is captured in the phrase, before the Lord. Before the Lord. For the Lord to make Samuel the man of God he would eventually grow up to be, he had to grow up before the Lord. Or in other words, in the constant presence of the Lord. I mean, that really is the whole point of the story of Hannah. That her barrenness and her desire for a son brought her to such a place of brokenness and desperation that she finally made a vow to God. She promised God something. She promised the Lord that if he gave her a son, she would give that son back to him to be a living sacrifice all the days of his life. To be raised there in the presence of God. Where God would teach him, where God would mold him into the instrument he wanted him to be that someday he might be a leader that would affect and change the entire nation for God. Now understand something else, very important. She couldn't make that decision on her own. You see, Elkanah, her husband, was in authority over her. And according to Jewish laws recorded in Numbers 30, he had the authority to overrule her vow. That's why she tells him what she wants to do in verse 22. And then Elkanah responds in verse 23 with his approval. It says, And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. So the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now, we talk almost exclusively about Hannah's sacrifice and giving Samuel to the Lord but fail to take into consideration the sacrifice of Elkanah. This was his firstborn son from the wife that he really loved the most. And this was their firstborn son together. They were both offering their son as a living sacrifice to God. And the Lord would use him, as we've already talked about, to usher in a new era in the history of his people, Israel. Now, What did Elkanah mean when he said, Only let the Lord establish his word? Verse 23, And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. We would have expected him to say something like, May the Lord help you to keep your word, Hannah, since her vow was really the thing that was in view here. What did Elkanah mean when he said, only let the lord establish his word verse 23 let's read it again and elkanah her husband said to her do what seems best to you wait until you have weaned him only let the lord establish his word what word we don't get any anything from the story that said god spoke anything to hannah what is elkanah referring to I think it goes back to something we discussed last week concerning what Eli, the high priest, said to Hannah. If you look back in verse 17, after Hannah comes to the house of God, and she's so burdened, she's so broken, that she's on her face before the Lord, weeping and praying, but she can't even talk. She's just so devastated that God has not given her a son. And she's just laying there, praying her mouth is moving, but there's no words coming out, and Eli thinks she's drunk. And it says, you know, how long will you be drunk? Go home, sleep it off, kind of a thing, right? And Hannah's mortified. She said, oh, no, my, my Lord, I'm not a woman who is intoxicated. I'm just brokenhearted. And she explains the whole thing to him. Verse 17, then Eli answered and said, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now, as we said last week, the Jewish people believe that Eli didn't just pronounce a word of hope to Hannah. Hope it all works out for you. Hope God gives you that son. No, they believe that he actually prophesied a word of the Lord upon Hannah. In other words, Eli prophesied a promise that God was giving to her. And it seems that Hannah took it that way because immediately she's no longer burdened. Her countenance lifts, as she no doubt understood now that God had promised her that she would have a son. And she would give that son back to him as an offering, and then that child would be greatly used by the Lord to bring about his purposes. And so Elkanah, again a very godly man, is simply putting his stamp of approval on Hannah's vow, and giving his blessing to her by saying, look, do all that's in your heart to do, Hannah, and may the Lord do all that he has promised to do with this child. So again, a very godly man. He respects the spirituality of his wife. He knows she's the real deal. And he believes that if God has spoken to her through Eli, he is going to fully back everything that God has promised her. He's not going to stand in the way. He could have stepped in and said, no, no, no. Uh, that's my firstborn son. I, I'll call the shots on this one. And no, you're not giving him to the Lord. He's going to be. Re- but Elkanah was a godly man. He respected his wife's relationship with God, and he went along with, with what she felt God was saying to her. So we've seen Hannah's prayer for a son is answered by the Lord. Secondly, Hannah prepares her son, for the Lord. Number three, finally, Hannah presents her son, to the Lord. Verse 24. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her. This is now, she's finally making the pilgrimage now Hannah, uh, that Samuel's weaned. So she takes him up there to Shiloh with three bulls, one ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young, about three. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. Don't let that stumble you, okay? She's not lending the kid to him for a few days. It's a permanent loan is the idea for the rest of his life, okay? As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshiped the Lord there. Now, According to the law of Moses, every firstborn male of man or animal, listen, belonged to the Lord. Let me read it to you out of Exodus 13. God said, verse 2, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. God always got the first fruit of the land, the firstborn of man or animal. Now, The firstborn male of animal was to be sacrificed to God, okay? Belonged to him, was to be sacrificed to him. God, listen, listen to me, never at any time prescribed any child sacrifice. He was not looking for them to sacrifice their firstborn son. God says, no, the firstborn son you must surely redeem. When do I do that, Lord? Well, Numbers 18 verse 15 says, when the child is one month old, you shall surely redeem him for five shekels of silver. In other words, he's mine. I don't want your children to be sacrificed to me, literally. So you give me five shekels of silver. Silver was the medal of redemption. And I'll let you keep the child to be your own, to be raised in your home, but in my ways, okay? Hannah didn't redeem her son, didn't give the five shekels. Of course, Elkanah was in agreement with this. Instead, they actually did offer the child to the Lord. Not a blood sacrifice, but again, a living sacrifice okay, they offered him to the Lord, she did, as the, listen, as the first fruit of her womb. Please don't lose me, okay, very important topic. Giving to God the first fruits of all that he has given to us is a very important principle. One, listen, that transcends the old covenant and applies to God's people today, and I'm not teaching tithing, I'll get to that in a moment. I'm talking about the principle, the principle. Of the first fruits being given to God. Look, God taught this to his people and reinforced it constantly. For the Israelites, the principle of giving to God the first fruits of their children, which they got to redeem and keep for themselves, but their livestock, the um, fruit of their land, crops, olives, grapes, whatever it might be, uh, giving to God the first of what he had given to them, well, that guaranteed that God would receive it and give to them multiplied back. In fact, they even had a whole feast dedicated to this principle—the feast of first fruits. It was a, uh, a a feast in the spring when the first shoots of the barley harvest came up out of the ground. They would cut them off, take them down to the temple, wave them before the Lord. In other words, it was a wave offering. Lord, here's the first fruits of our crops. You get the first fruits, Lord. They're yours. And then God would receive it and promise them a bumper crop in the fall. The idea is this, though: God didn't need those barley shoots. But he wanted to reinforce a principle in their hearts and lives. You always give back to me the first of what I've given to you. You put me first. Okay, I've blessed you. Don't forget me. How are you not going to forget me? You're going to give back to me the first of everything I've given to you. It's a principle that God was very adamant about. Okay, Hannah did that. She gave to the Lord the first fruit of her womb, Samuel. And God responded, chapter 2, verse 21, He gave her back and multiplied back to her three sons and two daughters. But this was something, guys, that Israel got away from. See, this was the very thing God warned them against. I'm bringing you into this good land. I'm going to drive the Canaanites out. They're evil. I'm going to give you houses you didn't build, wells you didn't dig, vineyards you didn't plant. But here's the danger. If you don't have to depend on me for your daily bread, what did Jesus teach us to pray? give us this day our daily bread, why did he pray that? Why did he teach us to pray that? He wanted us to live in a continual state of dependency upon God. Because the Lord knew that when we don't have to depend on God for everything, we get self-sufficient, we start to drift from God. Israel did the very thing. They came into the land, okay, they had all this prosperity, all these material blessings. After a while, they just didn't really need God, it seemed. And so they began to turn away from God. And what happened was, when you turn away from God, you will inevitably turn to self, primarily, and the world. Okay? And that's what Israel did. They turned away from God, and they began to focus on themselves. On themselves. And the result was they violated the principle of putting God first and suffered the consequences. Turn to Haggai chapter 1. Now, Haggai was a post-exilic prophet. What does that mean? Well, he was a prophet of God during the time after the Babylonian captivity. After the exile to Babylon, when God brought back his people after 70 years in Babylon, they came back to the land of Israel to repatriate it. And what did they find? They found nothing but piles of rocks everywhere. Because the Babylonians had completely destroyed Jerusalem, the temple. Everything was just a big pile of rocks. Here they travel 700 miles, very difficult trip, come back to Jerusalem to rebuild, and look what they find. They find piles of rocks everywhere. Well, they want to, first of all, clear the temple mount off so they can rebuild the temple. You can't have a nation under God. You can't have a nation that puts God first without a temple to worship God in. So they began to clear off rocks. You can imagine the work was very difficult, heavy rocks, you got a million rocks, you work all day moving heavy rocks, when you look at the pile of rocks at the end of the day, it looks like you haven't done anything, okay? Well, the people got discouraged and they just decided, you know what, maybe it's not really time to build God's house, maybe it's just time to build our houses. So that's what they did. They forsook building the house of God and began, and what happened was they never did go back, They kept working on their houses. They kept beautifying them, making them more and more luxurious. And here is God's house sitting in ruins. So God raises up the prophet Haggai and calls them to task. He calls them uh, on account. He says in verse 2, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. The people are saying the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the Lord sent this message to the prophet Haggai. Uh, Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies says. Look at what's happening to you. Look around. Look what's happening. You have planted much but harvest little. You eat but are not satisfied. You drink but are still thirsty. You put on clothes but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them into pockets filled with holes. This is what the Lord of Heaven's Army says to you. Look at what's happening to you. Now go up to the hills and bring down timber and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it, in it and be honored, says the Lord. I'll be first again in your lives. You hoped for rich harvests, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, <laughs> I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Well, all of you are busy building your own fine houses. It's because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. I have called for a drought on your fields and hills, a drought to wither the grain and grapes and olive trees and all your other crops, a drought to starve you and your livestock and to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. What is God saying? You have violated a very important principle and I'm not going to look the other way. You are not putting me first. You got drought because I've, I'm withholding the rain. A lot of Christians are like this. Okay, uh, Very dry. Uh, no fruit in their lives. Uh, I'll ask them. Well, are you putting God first? Are you putting God first? Are you are you you know getting up early in the morning, giving the first part of your day, spending a little time in the Word, maybe in prayer? Uh, does your week revolve around church and coming to, to the house of God and worshiping Him and thanking Him for all He's done? I mean, are you just trying to add God to your life, or are you have you made God your entire life? That's the problem. Too many Christians want to add God to their life Somewhere in the periphery, he's not the, really the focus or the center. The idea of the Christian life is you can't just add God to your life. He's got to become your life, right? And that's why a lot of Christians are dry and fruitless. They work and they work and they work all this overtime, but they never really have enough money to pay off their bills. God says, I am withholding from you the blessings that I want to give you until you put me first, until you get your life right with me. I must be the priority. See, that's what's really going on here. Now, the people didn't really listen too well, okay? Seventy-five years later, Nehemiah comes on the scene and finds the same thing going on. And being a godly man and a good leader, he reasoned with the people to make the necessary changes to put God first in their lives once again. And the people responded positively. In fact, turn to Nehemiah chapter 10. Here's what the people said in response to nehemiah encouraging them to get their lives right with god put him first again here's what they said nehemiah 10 verse 35 they said we promise to bring the first part of every harvest to the lord's temple year after year whether it be a crop from the soil or from our fruit trees we agree to give god our oldest sons and firstborn of our all of our herds and flocks as prescribed in the law we will present them to the priests who minister in the temple of our god we will store the produce in the storerooms of the temple of our god we will bring the best notice this now the best of our flour and other grain offerings the best of our fruit the best of our new wine and of our new wine and olive oil and we promise to bring to the lord a tenth of everything our land produces for it is the levite to collect the tithes in all our rural towns okay well in the old testament god said the tenth of the crops and everything else belonged to him i'm not teaching tithing i'm teaching the principle putting god first i don't believe tithing is a law for new testament christians you say well why not because tithing was a law for free men you own certain things and out of those things that you own you gave god a tenth i'm a slave of christ I don't own anything; it's all His. So it's like, Lord, what can I keep? Now, he graciously let me keep a lot. Okay, but the idea is, I don't look at myself as someone who owns things and then gives God a tenth. I look at my life and my possessions as we all belong to Him. Therefore, Lord, Lord, what can I keep? He might want me to give uh, my entire paycheck one week to somebody who's needy. Not just a tenth part of it. It's yours, Lord you want me to give it to this person because they have a need it's yours okay i'm not under law i'm under grace and you graciously give to me everything i need and if you want me to give a gift to somebody else then that's exactly what i'll do but again guys they gave to god the best right that was the idea and the lord must get the first fruits in our lives in other words the lord must be the priority of our lives and if we honor god by putting him first as he deserves right And we offer him the best, the first fruits of our, in other words, the best of our time, money, service, love, so on. And guess what? God will bless our lives. Okay? And I'm thinking more of anything else, not material blessings necessarily, but spiritual blessings. We will be so full of the Spirit, overflowing with the joy of the Lord. You talk about bearing fruit. How about the fruit of the Spirit? Okay? You put God first you order your life around him, you make him the priority, your first love as Jesus said. I guarantee you you're gonna be so filled with his love and his joy and his peace. You get out of things out of whack, you you start getting away from God and making him just kind of something you add someone you add to your life while your life is really the focus, I guarantee you you're gonna spiral out of control, crash and burn. I have seen it so many times. I have seen Christians who have violated this principle so many times. When they first got saved, they put God first. They were in church, in the, in the word. They were doing the work of God. Then they slowly drifted. And they got so far from God that their lives just were turned upside down. They became a mess. And they come to me, and they want to know, well, what's happening? Why has God forsaken me? Have you forsaken him? Because the Bible says, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. If you forsake him, he'll forsake you. Are you drawing near to God? Is he really your first love? Well, not really. Well, that's your problem. He's trying to get your attention because he loves you. When God says, look, you work and work and work and put your money into pockets with holes in it, God was saying, because unless you, until you get your priority right with me, I'm not going to bless your life. So that, that's the idea. Look, let's just bring this to a close. I wanted to just emphasize that because it's so, so important. It's one of the lessons that we learned from the life of Hannah how she gave to God the first fruit of her womb, and God responded and blessed her with uh, five other children. Another important lesson we can glean from the story of Hannah is that as the family goes, listen, so goes the nation. So goes the nation. And the character of the family depends on the spiritual life of the parents. There's an African proverb that says, the ruin of a nation begins in the homes of its people. We are living that out. Even Confucius taught, the strength of a nation is derived from the integrity of its homes. And it's not religion God wants. It's a genuine relationship. One author put it this way. He said, Eli and his sons, they had religion. Eli was the high priest. His two sons were priests. But God was really not in their home. They had religion, but not a relationship. He was on to say, but Elkanah and Hannah had a godly home that honored the Lord and they gave him their best. The future hope of the people of Israel rested with that young lad in the tabernacle learning to serve the Lord. Never underestimate the power of the home or the power of a little child dedicated to God, end quote. And finally, guys, there is one lesson we must not learn from the story of Hannah, and that is that if a woman is barren and desperate enough, she prays long and hard enough. God will give her a child. As godly as Elkanah and Hannah were, listen to me. They are not the real focus of the story. God's sovereignty is. God saw so- don't miss that. Okay. Now I'm sure there were other women living in Hannah's day that were barren for physical reasons. Okay. Sometimes a woman is born with physical reasons why she can't bear a child. Not a, It's not a judgment of God. It's not God cursing her life. There's just physical problems there, okay? And I'm sure there were other women in Hannah's day who were barren and were crying out to God in prayer constantly for a child, but he chose not to answer their prayers. I have seen this often with young couples who, uh, you know, get married and they are Christian couples, get married and are praying for a child, praying for a child, and God has not given them a child, so eventually they decide to adopt a child. I think sometimes God just does that because He wants kids adopted and raised in godly homes. Now, I can't tell you how many times, after 10 years of crying, they adopt a child and then they get pregnant. God says, okay, you adopted the child, that's what I wanted. Now here's your kids, we'll get you some kids too. But you know, the Lord is great. He's just, but He does things like that, right? But we need to be careful though. That we don't take the lives of the people in the Bible. Yes, we can take them as examples uh, in some areas of of principles and things. But we have to be careful that we don't see these people in the Bible as examples of how God promises to work in every person's life. Look, God chose to give Hannah a son even though she was barren. Listen, because he had a special purpose for that son. The same was true with Sarah, Abraham's wife, who prayed for many years for a son. And the son did not come, even though God eventually promised them, yes, I will give you a son. And eventually Isaac was born, okay? But Isaac had a purpose because Isaac was the messianic line, the line through whom Messiah would come. We, we read in the book of Judges how that there was a, uh, a husband named Manoah and his wife unnamed. She was barren. They prayed for a child, and God withheld the child until finally one day an angel comes. And says, God will grant your request for a son. He is going to be a judge. And they wound up naming him Samson and went on to be used by God, even though he had some problems. Um, <laughs> of course, the most famous example is, of this is uh, Elizabeth and um, uh, her husband. Um, help me out. Zacharias. Thank you. Zacharias. Yeah, my, these senior moments are. Anyways. <laughs> Zacharias and uh, they had prayed for years for a child and she was barren and now they were elderly giving up hope for a child and one day the angel Gabriel comes and says you're going to have a child you're going to name his name him John because God is going to use him in a very powerful way so look what am I saying I'm just saying that God is sovereign he is a God who answers prayer and if you have you need a miracle pray for a miracle our god is a miracle working god there are so many times god has worked a miracle my own daughter-in-law my son phil's wife has a physical problem that they say you probably never get pregnant she got pregnant right away now is pregnant with her second one okay look you pray to god doctors they do their best but they're not god god's in control Okay? So we pray and we trust God and we say, Lord, here's what I'd like. It's a good thing to want kids or, Lord, I would like, like to be healed of this disease and so on. And you pray and you trust God. And if he answers that prayer, you praise God. And if he doesn't, you trust him. You bow to his sovereignty. You say, Lord, when I became your child, I knew I was relinquishing control of my life to you. And I was going to trust you to do whatever you wanted to do in my life. Guys, look, sometimes the healing doesn't come. The marriage isn't saved. The problem isn't solved. Not the way we would want. God's still on the throne. He's still a good God. He still loves us. And we just have to praise him. We have to bow to his sovereignty. I talked to my brother last night who had a guy in the truck as they were going to a job. And this guy said that there was another guy talking to him who at one time was a Christian but had renounced his faith. And this other guy was hammering on this friend of my brother's and he said, my faith is starting to waver. What's the deal? Well, he keeps telling me, if God's such a loving God, why would he allow kids to die young? and Why would he allow this to happen? Why did he allow my mother to die? And It's always if God was really a God, if he really existed and was a God of love, he wouldn't let these things happen. And I won't give you the whole conversation. But basically the gist of it was this. So you're telling me that he is saying because he can't figure God out, God can't be real? Does he not understand Isaiah 55, 8 and 9? My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my (laughs) thoughts than your thoughts. Uh, Newsflash! (laughs) If somebody has said, if I was small enough for you to figure out, and understand, I wouldn't be big enough for you to worship. At the end of the day, I'm God. I, I try to give you as much as I can that you can understand. There's a lot of things about me and what I do that you'll never understand in this life. So you have to trust me. You have to trust me, okay? Are you telling me because I can't understand God, I can't believe in God? I told her you, you could put me in a warehouse full of car parts. I couldn't build you a car, okay? Yet I believe in cars. I have a car. I use a car. I don't understand a car. I don't understand all the things they're going to make in a car, and that's a stupid car illustration. How about God? Okay, you tell me I can't, I can't understand God. I can't believe in God. That is as foolish as it gets, and the height of arrogance, by the way. Because to understand God, you have to be God. So, guys, God's sovereignty is not something that is some theological concept that only pastors and theologians deal with. It's where we live, guys. Every time God doesn't, we just buried a young guy or had a memorial service. One of the guys in our church, his son died, 30 years old, on Christmas Day. How do you deal with that? You fall back in God's sovereignty. Lord, you're God and I'm not. I don't understand why you took this kid at 30. I believe he got saved before he died. I don't know all the whys of God, but I still trust him. I still love him. And the sovereignty of God becomes the theme of Hannah's prayer that we'll study next week. It's important. So hopefully you'll come back. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are on the throne, that you are God, and well, we are not. And we have to just trust you. And, Lord, you're a gracious God. You do answer prayers. You do work miracles. But sometimes, Lord, you say no. And we have to just say, okay, then I bow to your lordship. Not my will, but your will be done. And we just have to praise you, that you know best. So thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. Father, we ask that you would go before us this week. Give us grace to be all that you want us to be, to be a light in the darkness, to have transformed lives as we go out into the world, that people might say, what's with you? Hey, Jesus is with me. And he has heard my prayers. And he has answered them in my life. has totally been transformed. We thank you, Lord, and we ask that you would just bless our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.